Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Lots of cool pictures, and you want to follow because I give away some cool things, books and music and gift cards, so I encourage you to follow to find out how you can win. You can see that I actually do send people items. If you look on the uh, Instagram page or Facebook, you'll see pictures that people took of items, so it's not a a hoax or anything. Uh, you can also check out the show on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, here at Blog Talk Radio. Please comment, uh, follow, love it, love it, love it. This morning, wow, historian, photographer, documentarian, um, I'm sure she's exhausted after writing this book physically and mentally. She traveled across the United States documenting sites that were important for African-Americans traveling in the past and how they did it. The book is called Overground Railroad, The Green Book, and the Roots of Black Travel in America. Um, Kendacy Taylor, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for writing the book. I think it will really open a lot of people's eyes. I read a lot, and I learn still more stuff about our country Uh, happy things, sad things, silly things. Um, And also, thank you. You shared a lot of personal moments with a particular family member that you had, and I appreciate that. Um, Let's just start off uh, with the title of the book. It's called Overground Railroad. Um, I know what the connection is, but would you mind telling the audience how you came up with that name, Overground Railroad? Sure. You know, it was... uh... It was kind of, kind of by accident. I was I had a fellowship at Harvard with um, Henry Louis Gates, and it, you know there were so many pinch me moments. It's just standing there in the yard talking to my fellows. And one day I was there, saying, describing the Green Book, and I said, you know, it was like an overground railroad because there were so many people that were obviously above ground and not underground. You know, mm-hmm, the metaphor mm-hmm. being underground and having to to not showcase um, that kind of facilitation of freedom, right? But it was happening above ground where there were these businesses and there was this vibrancy and there were these black communities. And there, as long as you could just find South Central Los Angeles, you were good because everything you possibly need was there for you. And that was so significant because when you were, especially during Jim Crow America, Black folks were shut out of nearly almost every segment of, of society. Um, and so I was saying it was like an overground railroad. And John Jennings, who's an incredible uh, writer, he has his own imprint now, I believe, at Abrams Books, who published my book. Um, he pointed to me and he said, that's the, that's the title of your book. And mm. said, oh, my God, 
you're right. And I called my agent right there on the spot and said, I think I got the title and she loved it. So that's how it happened. Tell the audience who may not be familiar with this book, what it's about, just, just in a couple sentences, what it's about. Well, it's a book that examines the green book, which was a travel guide that was published for black travelers during the Jim Crow era. It examines the green book through the eyes of a contemporary lens of black social and physical mobility. So meaning that, you know, really not only did these things happen during the Jim Crow era, what is the analog of what's happening now? And so the book really goes chronologically through the years of the green book from the thirties to the sixties, and then takes it into today. How long did it take you to write this book? I started in about 2013 and it was published last year. So I, it was what, seven, eight years. Um, and just consuming every waking moment. Um, but because there's so much material and it's so new to us because the green books um, were just digitized. I did a fellowship at the Schomburg Center in the New York Public Library in Harlem, which was critical because they have the largest collection of green books and anybody can just Google NYPL green book and see the collection that they've digitized. But when I started this work, these, the collection wasn't digitized. So it was just incredible to get access to all those editions and do the fellowship there. Um, and again, we're still learning about these businesses. Um, it's still, I'm still doing projects related to this material because there's still so much, but I had to get the book out. So um, thankfully I did. Right. <laughs> yeah. We were just talking right before I said, I really could talk to you for two days because there's so much information in it. Now you we're um, going to 30, trying to go to 30 sites a day, I read. Is that correct? While you were yeah. doing this? What's wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> I, something clearly is wrong with me because most humans don't do that. And, uh, and there's a reason why they don't do it because it's not healthy. But I was so driven, um, figuratively and literally driven to uh, gather as much material as possible. After I left Harvard in 2017, I knew I'd already signed a, you know, a book contract and I knew I had to deliver the book with, I only had eight months to actually write the book. Um, Mm -hmm. But I knew that everything on the, during the road trips, um, that kind of field research, I had a very limited time, even though I had been doing, you know, I, I'd lived in LA when I first started the book project and I got the fellowship at the Schaumburg. So I drove across country to New York and on that road trip, I probably um, found about, I went to about 900 green book sites Mm. and started getting a patterning of like how many I could do in a day. Um, Of course I do all the research ahead of time. I had done all the mapping ahead of time. So, and thankfully most of the green book sites are clustered in traditional black neighborhoods. So about 80%. So I, by the time I left, I went from New York and then I went to Harvard. And after I left Harvard, I had a good schedule down on really how much I was able to, to scout in a day. And that doesn't mean that I'd get out. Most of them are gone. You know, I found that about 80% are actually just gone. 
Um, there's mm. no, you know, they've been covered up by either parking garages or um, freeways. Urban renewal was a real thing. It just, you know, I, there was once 20 green book sites and I just see a big freeway there. So, you know, depending on the day, um, most of those sites where I did 30 in a day were relatively close to each other. And then mm-hmm. there's some days in the West I would drive for a full day and not find one um, because they were so few and far between. So, but yeah, it was, it was a committed effort um, that was, you know, and then at night I was working 16 hour days. And by the time I get back into the hotel, I'd spend the whole evening, you know, mapping out and preparing and writing it all down so that I could do it while I was driving um, to have my itinerary for the next day. Now you uh, mentioned that you mapped out your, plan to, you know, where you were going to go and the places and things of that nature. Tell the audience the difference between you driving now uh, in the last, say, 5, 10, 20 years even, um, and the people that were driving in the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s and how the Green Book helped them. Well, clearly, you know, (laughs) they didn't have Google Maps and uh, (laughs) they didn't have all those you know, useful tools on how to avoid, I, I avoid highways. I generally don't, I try and stay off the highway as much as possible. Cause I don't think you really see the country. Um, but you know, they didn't have sundown towns, right. Um, that was a big factor. And the way, the way that I even learned about the Wait, green book, I was too fast past that. Um, tell uh, us what are sundown towns? Because some people may not know what that is. Right. Yeah. That's, I was going to, that's where I was going with this because I was commissioned to write a travel guide on Route 66. I'd never been commissioned to do a project before. I've always done my own projects. And I had written a book called Counterculture on the American Diner Waitress, um, which is why Moon Travel asked me to, to do this book on Route 66. And so as I was doing research on that, I learned that half the counties on Route 66, which traveled from Chicago to L.A., were sundown towns. And sundown towns were all white towns. They were all white on purpose. Um, there's a book uh, James Lowen wrote called Sundown Towns. He's, a, he's the premier scholar on this subject. And um, when I was led to his book and understood how this was pervasive throughout America, and they were largely a northern and western phenomenon, like there were more sundown towns in the North and West than there were in the South because the rules in the South had already been established. So the North and the West was this kind of this wild West. Literally, you didn't know from town to town what you were going to run into. And a sundown town would either have a sign at the County line saying N word, don't let the sun set on you here, or they mm-hmm. ring a bell at 6 PM alerting the local laborers who were black, that that was their cue that it's time to go. You know, you have to leave after 6 p.m. So this was a real thing. And, again, it was news to me, um, and that's how I stumbled onto the Green Book. So I thought, well, what, what, what did people do? Like, you would need some kind of guidance. Again, there was no Twitter or, you know, there, were not, there wasn't even a list of sundown towns at the time. It was just a matter of you just literally took your life in your hands, in your own hands, and mm-hmm. it was a huge risk. And there was incredible amount of courage um, that these people of all different classes, mind you, it's not that just, I mean, clearly if you were on vacation, you would have the means 
to be on vacation as a black family. But there was during this time, one and a half million black folks were leaving the South, fleeing racial terror because the great the second wave of the Great Migration was underway. So the Green Book supplied opportunities not just for those who had, you know, if you wanted to stay in a a nicer hotel or if you wanted right. to stay in a modest tourist home because mm. you were a migrant family. Um, so it really served all levels of, of black folks for those decades. Now, now um, one of the cool things is you have positive things, which I, I'll say positive, and you have some ne- negative, horrible stories in there um, and, and just some funny things. But one one of the cool things about the book is that um, you have just the ability to talk about what was happening then and have we really progressed now. And I will tell you, one of my goals or my bucket list is to travel across the country. And I, I don't think I can do it. Like, not I can't physically do it, but I physically and mentally um, are concerned about my health and safety of driving across mm-hmm. this country as a black woman right now in 2021. Yeah. So, you know, you it's, know, it's, it's interesting. Ahead. I mean, I think, you know, right now, either, I mean, clearly, you know, we can get gunned down on the street in our neighborhoods. Right. So, I mean, right. there's danger <laughs> um, everywhere. Uh, but you know, it, it is interesting. Um, I was, while I was on the road so much, I remember it was during the time when um, when uh, Trump was elected and things were happening on the border because of the, you know, the children and, and the U.S.-Mexico border. And, and I remember um, doing an interview uh, in the car and the interviewer, who was, you know, a well-meaning white man, who just said, you know, well, you're so close to Vancouver, because I was up north um, scouting. And he said, you know, maybe, you know, did you ever think about just going over to Vancouver for the day? And it was such an odd thing for him to just cavalierly suggest that I would just, like, cross the border <laughs> as, a black, mm-hmm. as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'm brown, and sometimes, you know, I've had cops speak to me in Spanish thinking that I'm, you know, Mexican, even though I'm not. Um, or Spanish descent. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to leave. You know, I can't just. And the last time I tried to just cross the border, I was detained for two hours and harassed and almost, what? you know, didn't make it across for no reason. So it's very, yeah, I move in the world very differently than most um, white folks. And I have to say, I mean, I would see more Confederate flags in upstate New York than I did in the whole state of South Carolina. So, yeah, every day was a journey in terms of, you know, really I use my instincts. It's not that I traveled with a stun gun, a knife, um, and mace, you know, at hands, at arm's length the entire time when I was in the car. And the bitter irony of it all is a lot of times it wasn't just dealing with the, you know, potential issues with law enforcement um, it was also, you know, when I was in Chicago and on the south side, of the, and I love, to, I love Chicago, it's one of my favorite cities, and I've been to Chicago probably 20 times, but I'd never been to this part of Chicago where 53 people had been shot that weekend I was there. Mm. And I was terrified to even get out of my car to use the bathroom, and I thought, well, this is ironic. 
I'm doing a project mm-hmm. on the Green Book. I'm in the community that was safe for black folks, and this is very not safe, right? So it was a real eye-opener. But thankfully, I did that field research because had I just left Harvard and wrote this book, it would be a very different book. And it was after yeah. I got off the road that I contacted Abrams, my publisher, and said, I want to rewrite the proposal because this is a different book now. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, if you don't agree, we can, I'll write the book that I agreed to, that I sold you. But once I wrote, rewrote the proposal, they agreed that, you know, I really needed to bring in these stories about today and show these layers of history that are still with us. Um, and it, I think it made it a harder book to write, but it, I think it made it a better book. Tell us about Victor Green and uh, actually, you know, how he went about trying to create the Green Book. Yeah, Victor Green was an incredible man. Um, he had a seventh grade education. Uh, he was from Harlem. He was a postal worker from Harlem, and he created the Green Book in 1936 because he there, we, we believe there's several reasons, but the main factors were that he had a, his wife, Alma Duke Green, who was also a big ally, and I believe a huge force as to why the Green Book was so popular and had the longevity it did. Um, but she, he would drive her to Richmond, Virginia from New York regularly to see her family, and he realized you know, how different it was being on the road as a black man. Um, and he had a friend who was Jewish who would go to the Westchester County north of Harlem, and uh, he would travel in the Borscht Belt, and he had a guide, a kosher guide. And Victor Green thought, well, that would be really useful for us, you know, for black mm-hmm. folks. He was living <laughs> in Harlem, and half of Harlem was segregated still. There was half the places on 125th Street black people weren't allowed in. You know, or there was segregated um, seating in the theaters. So, you know, I think people assumed that the North was a particular way around race, and that's just simply not true. So the book really um, shows it through Victor Green's eyes of what he was experiencing at that time in the 30s. And, you know, he went on to, um, he actually died in 1960. He didn't see the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Um, and the Green Book was then run by his wife, uh, Alma, and nearly an all-female, we believe it was an all-female um, staff. There's one name that we can't, that's initials, and we can't determine the gender. Um, but, uh, and then it was uh, given to um, Langley Waller and Melvin Tapley, who published the last uh, couple of editions. So, you know, he was... He was kind of, I think, the Steve Jobs for, the, for black folks. I mean, he, he it was a very yeah. simple idea, right? I think he was definitely ahead of his ahead of his time. And one of the cool things I liked is, um, I mean, he he it's almost like he had a degree from Wharton in terms of like an MBA, like his ability with the covers, you know, changing the covers, um, also the how he printed the book. That was interesting. You want to tell him about that? Because he printed it at the beginning one way, and then he changed um, yeah, he the was, process. He was, not, he was like six feet tall. He was very dashing. He was very handsome. And so he had a presence about him. Um, but he also had incredible amount of self-esteem and composure and class. And so he didn't just 
you know, focus on, he found a white publisher to publish his guide, which is unheard of at that time. He went down to Midtown in an area of the, town, of the city where black people probably, you know, his, uh, the publisher said black folks probably couldn't even get a cup of coffee at the corner store there. Um, but mm. he walked into that publisher and said, I have this guide. And the, the numbers were undeniable at that point. Um, even though he had just started the guide, there was such a need for it. And they weren't racist. Um, and they said, okay, we'll publish it. Um, and then he ends up leaving them because they're not, they don't, they're not doing offset printing. And he was like, you know, I think there's this new printing technique that I can get bigger photos and I can have a better brand identity. Um, and that's where you're saying, you know, it's like he had this intuitive nature about business, about design, and um, he left that publisher and went to somebody else who could do offset printing, and they were really, they were, you know, they said it was one of the biggest losses for us for him to move on. So not only did he have the courage to say, you know, I'm going to a white publisher who's going to really put the, this on the map, but I'm going to leave that publisher and keep thinking bigger, and that's a, that's the man he was. Um, one of the um, interesting things that I was actually totally blown away uh, was this international travel. Inter- mm-hmm. Reading about international travel of, of black people at that time, at a time when, in my mind, I felt like black people were stuck in America. You know, I mm-hmm. and we talked right before the show started. You went to school, you and, and both of us, you know, went to college, and, and we learned about African American history way more than you learned in high school. And you, you know, you learn all these things, and you're thinking, okay, yeah, I know about you know what happened to my people, and da 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 da. And then I'm reading your book, and I'm like, wow, I didn't realize how stuck my brain was. I didn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't visualize black people traveling to Europe and all over, even though I know logically probably they did, but like if you had asked me, I would be like, no, no, they were stuck in America. We can go nowhere. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, tell, us, tell us about um, the part of the book where he gets into international travel business. Yeah, he's, and that's the thing. It was happening in terms of, you know, Langston Hughes, and there were people who were finding themselves in Paris and realizing, wow, we're being treated better here. Um, so there was this excitement about, you know, if you could just get on a plane, you know, your world could really open up. And so Victor Green has an edition where he starts, you know, it's kind of an international edition and the plane is on the cover of the Green Book, um, where it was very, it was a critical kind of psychic opening of understanding, you know, um, at that time, Dr. Martin Luther King was getting his Nobel Peace Prize. There were a lot of things happening in black um, historical moments that were happening. And there was another large um, Henderson, which is a large uh, travel agency that was yes, that was created a by a black story. woman. Oh, I write yes. about her. Um, and so she was also doing her thing. So there were all these things, you know, happening in the culture at that time. And, Of course, Victor Green, you know, being the innovative person he is, he decided, you know, yeah, we need to stand that um, the car was the first sense of freedom, but get on a plane. You know, he also had boats and um, cruises, and he had his own um, travel company that he would book itineraries for folks um, who wanted to leave because there was this idea that, you know, not only was it possibly even – 
more um, dangerous to to be in America. Um, But if you had the means, you know, definitely people were, you know, he he had Bermuda was a big, and the Green Book was in over 30 countries in Africa. Um, There were green, there are, there were Green Book sites, you know, all throughout Europe and throughout the, um, the islands, uh, the Caribbean islands and, and in uh, Mexico, um, several in Mexico City that I'm starting to look at now. I mean, even though I've done the research for the United States, um, I'm looking at now expanding the project to the more international sites, and it's incredible what he was able to do. Yeah, because, again, if somebody had said the Green Book, I would have known that, um, you know, that it was um, definitely about – United States and traveling around the United States. Um, but one of the um, interesting things, you had a whole chapter about women. I like that. I am mm-hmm. a feminist. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and how the Green Book helped women. Can you talk about uh, the advertising that mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. were able to do? Yeah, it was an incredible, as I said, you know, the 1959 edition was when uh, Alma Duke Green takes it over. But women were a major force. They had a lot of businesses. A lot of black people had businesses, but a lot of black women had businesses. Um, and the, particularly uh, tourist homes were a major factor. They were kind of the first Airbnbs. Um, and they were run by mostly widowed women um, or married women uh, that had an extra bed and would cook you a meal. Um, so there were over close, close to 1,500 uh, tourist homes that were in the Green Book. There were women who were running all kinds of hair salons. The beauty shop culture was really big. Um, you know, beauty schools were listed in the Green Book just as a resource for, you know, entrepreneurship. It was a way that women really liberated them from being domestics and gave mm-hmm. them opportunities. So they, you know, Madam C.J. Walker's, um, she had passed by this time, but her schools and salons were in the green book. Um, there were women who were just, you know, business owners who had nightclubs that were really popular. And these women, you know, took no mess off anybody and they <laughs> fierce, you know, they were fierce negotiators. They, I would find articles about them in the paper, just saying, you know, everything and more that a man would say and, and entitled to being respected. They were vibrant and, um, and it was very inspiring. So I'm so glad I did get to just write a chapter, dedicate a chapter to them. There was a female who was actually an architect who built one of the green book sites. So, yeah, I think it, you know, it's something that gets skipped over, especially when we talk about civil rights history. Um, the women who come to the forefront are not, the business owners generally, or the ones that you don't um, think of in terms of how they really shaped and moved our culture. Now, we only have a couple minutes left, but real quick, tell us about some other things that are that you're creating based on this project. Well, yeah, the, my gosh, you know, it really is it's like an octopus, and there's just so many different <laughs> legs out there some wayward, others, you know, under control. But, you know, I have an exhibition that is that I developed, I curated 
an exhibition on the content specialist uh, with the Smithsonian, um, the Institution Traveling Exhibition Service arm of the Smithsonian. It's called Sites. They're touring the exhibition. It'll be it's at the National Civil Rights Museum now in Memphis, and it will tour the United States through 2024. So if you you can Google the Smithsonian and Negro Motorist Green Book is the title of the exhibition to learn more about that. Um, I'm developing a mobile app. Um, I have a children's book for ages 9 to 12 that will be coming out later this year. Um, I have a digital interactive map that I've developed with help from National Geographic, um, and that will be out in the next couple of months. Um, I'm working on a product line. I have other I have other projects as well. So it's a board game. Um, we're in the playtesting state with a board game, and that should be out by next year. So, yeah, thankfully this material lends itself to so many different ways to experience it. And there'll be walking tours and driving tours coming as well. Well, thank you so much again for writing the book. Thank you for coming on the show this morning. And please, mm-hmm. self-care is important. I'm a licensed social worker, so I'm going to say this to you because you got a lot oh. of stuff going on. Please take care of yourself so that you can finish at least one or two of them, okay? <laughs> thank you so much. I know it is <laughs> something that we have to do, and I am not always good at it, but I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the reminder. I'm doing my best. All right. Well, you have a you have a great a great weekend, and please remember wash your hands and cover your face with your mask. Okay. I will. You do the same. Okay. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for having me. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, I'm going to be giving away some copies of the Overground Railroad. So, again, you want to follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, you can stay tuned. I'm going to be doing a show about human trafficking with the guests from the Polaris Project. Um, so you can stay tuned and uh, listen to that. Talk to you soon. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A teenager learning the lingo. GOAT, G-O-A-T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time. As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. (laughs) 
It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 